Well, fantastic. It's great to be here. Um, some of you have managed to survive another night. So, um, we're, we're into a very practical subject tonight um, called developing people by delegating tasks. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? Sounds great subject to look at. Uh, next week, we're going to look at um, the subject of teamwork makes the dream work. Teamwork makes the dream work. So these two subjects tonight, uh, this week and next week, kind of go hand in hand and kind of like linked together um, in some way. And to be honest, I, I much prefer if teamwork this week and developing tasks next week because they flow better together. Because John Maxwell says this is the way to do it, so we're going to stick by what John Maxwell says. Okay. There was a, a great Bible teacher in America by the name of um, Jack Hayford, and phenomenal pastor, massive church in the US. And he, he got to speak at all these big conferences, and um, then did this big conference full of pastors and leaders of mega churches. He was asked a question by all these young aspiring leaders, and the question was, "What are your primary goals?" Uh, for the, in the immediate and the long-term future. You know, to, to see growth, to see things multiply and things increase. What, what do you do to make church bigger? And Jack Hayford um, said these words, I don't have any goals. And all these great young leaders said, what do you mean you don't have any goals? And he said this, the only goal I have is not to build big church, but to build big people. Yeah. To build big people. And so often we can focus on um, making the church bigger, but if you focus on making people bigger, the church grows naturally. My son is six years old, and every day he will walk around the kitchen in my shoes. <laughs> clump, clump, clump almost falling over from time to time. But the thing is, he wants to be big. And our desire as a leadership team and as those Christians is that we all grow into maturity and become big. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, if you've got your Bibles, if you haven't, shame on you. Shame. Got your Bible, Kirsten? Great. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 uh, says this, Paul's, it's a time Paul's labour for the church. But he says this, We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And the Greek word perfect is teleos, means mature. The heart of leaders is to make the church mature, to make the church perfect, that we all go through big people. Who's ever seen that film Big by uh, Tom Hanks? You know, he wants to be big, doesn't he? And it happens overnight. Unfortunately, in Christian life, it can't just happen overnight. It takes time to grow and to mature as believers. But I want to just share four simple things this evening about big people. Number one, big people don't stumble over small things. 
Okay? Write that down. Big people don't stumble over small things. If you're a big person, little, little issues don't affect the way you walk because you're big enough to get over the small things. Number two, big, big people write faster. <laughs> no, that's a joke. <laughs> Number two, big people carry stuff. Okay, and in any church, it's okay having a pastor who can carry the preaching and carry the worship and carry this and carry that. But we need to raise up more and more big people who can carry stuff, who can be responsible for carrying stuff. Number three. Big people can stand on their own two feet. Big people can stand on their own two feet and don't need others to continually help them. And number four, are you still with me? I'll go slower. And number (laughs) four. (laughs) Big people provide shelter for small people. So, if I was to ask you a question tonight, are you standing on your own two feet? Are you stumbling over small things or not? Are you able to stand on your own two feet? And are you able to provide shelter for others? That would indicate whether you answer yes or no to those questions, whether you're growing in Christ, whether you're stagnating in Christ. And the whole purpose of this course is to cause each one of us to grow into maturity and leadership as Christians. Okay? Everyone's still happy? Fantastic. Okay. See, we are, as Christians, in the people developmental business. That's what we do as Christian leaders, as Christian ministers, as small group leaders, as members of the church. We're here to help other people grow. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 verse 19 says this. Jesus says, Go ye therefore into all nations, baptising in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and making disciples of all nations. The verb, the command verb, is to make disciples. So we're not, we're not commanded to go, we're commanded to make disciples. And the word go is a, a verb, it's a doing word, and it supports the main command verb, which is to make disciples. The primary function of church is to make disciples and to help them grow into their faith. Okay, back to the notes, that's the little digression. Uh, the, under, the little line underneath there, uh, it says, moving from addition to multiplication. Moving from addition to multiplication. The, the, the church has so much potential to grow exponentially. The church has got so much potential to grow and increase and multiply. The problem is that we do not release that potential in people. do not release that potential in the churches. And it's important that we learn to shift to thinking how we can multiply and release people into the church and into ministry within the church. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, 
Then the twelve summoned the multitudes of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we may appoint over this business. We're going to come back to this later, um, but up to Acts chapter 6, it says in the Bible, in Acts 2.41 and 2.47 and 5.14, that God added to the church. After chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible doesn't say God added to the church, it says that the church multiplied. Okay, so I'll read them verse that again. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 47, and Acts chapter 5, verse 14, say that God added to the church. Okay, I think it was 3,000 people on the first day, which is great. But after Acts verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1, it says that God multiplied the church. Multiplication is so much faster and so much more effective than addition. If you turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, I mean for the New International Version, but any version will do. After this passage, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 reads this. So the word of God spread, the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why did the church begin to grow rapidly? Why did it begin to multiply? Simply because people were given opportunities to express their gifting and their calling and their, their ministry in the context of the early church. So the disciples, the apostles, were freed up from serving at tables to preach the word of God. And those who were gifted and called to serve tables were listening to that ministry. And when God sees his church flowing in the gifts that they've been given, there's a blessing and an increase that comes upon it. And therefore things start to change and start to grow. And it's because people are released and people multiply in ministry. There's a great American evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody. Anyone heard of D.L. Moody before? great American preacher. He said this, and this is really quite in-depth, I'd rather set ten men to work than do the work of ten men. Wow. Isn't that a revelation? So often, <laughs> sometimes we try and do too much ourselves. Uh, when I was I've planted three churches in my life so far. And the second church I planted was when I was 23 years old on a housing estate in Lincoln. We've been doing street work uh, every Wednesday night for about a year and a half. And we, see, we saw 75 people become Christians. And we planted a little church on a housing estate in a little community centre. And it was like me on my own doing it. I, I, I put the chairs out, I hired the hall, I did the worship, I did the preaching, I did the teaching, I organised the jumble sale, I organised the, the prayer nights, I organised the house groups, I did everything. And I was working full time for groups opticians, 
and I was completely exhausted. Then I realised that you don't have to do it all on your own. But I know so many churches where the pastor does everything. I was preaching last Sunday morning at a, a church, great church, but that's what he preached, and basically what I did is I, I took the offering, I did the worship, I did the opening prayer, the closing prayer, I preached, I did everything. It was an old school church, but you do everything. No, it was a... Oh. And it was great. So, great church. But the thing is, we believe there's people who have sat in pews on a Sunday morning who've got God-given abilities and gifts and strengths that are just lying dormant and the heart of any leader is to release those people into their gifts. Are you with us? Sometimes, if we do too much ourselves, we can bottleneck the growth. Most times when churches are growing it's because the pastor it's not because the pastor isn't doing enough it's because the pastor is not is doing too much that makes sense sometimes you can do too much there's a great phrase that's used in the business community that says this don't work harder work smarter Trevor you've probably heard of that haven't you yeah. it's not how much effort you put in it's how you operate that makes the difference. And the heart of this church, I know with George, is to see people released and to function in their ministry. See, leaders are at their best when they're raising up leaders around them. Okay, we're going to look at the day that Moses became a leader. Okay, return to you now. It's half down the first paragraph. In Exodus 18, verse 17, 27, Jethro introduces the principle to Moses. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you to do. You cannot do it alone. Next week we're going to talk about team leadership, team commitment and team involvement, which would be great. This week we're just laying a foundation for us to understand that we can't do stuff on our own. And this does not just apply to pastors. If you, if you are a worship leader, if you're a housekeeper leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a steward, then I want to encourage you to start to think about how you can equip and release those around you in your sphere of influence. As you know, Moses was trying to lead the people in Exodus 18, and everyone was coming to him day in, day out, week in, week out, trying to get the answer to their problems. And Moses was becoming overwhelmed, people were not being satisfied by the answers he was given, and therefore he decided to delegate responsibility out to other people. And there were seven changes that Moses took himself through to, to enable the community to grow and flourish and to enable people to grow and flourish in their ministry and in their role in this late community. Number one, um, he became a man of prayer. That's the blank there, a man of prayer. It's important that as leaders we pray. 
Because prayer is the acknowledgement that we can't do this, God, only you can do this. Prayer is a, an act of humility before Almighty God, knowing that this is not our church, it's his church, it's not our ministry, it's not our Sunday school, it's not our worship team, it's not our work, it's his work. And we're asking him to intervene on our behalf. And I think if our leaders had more time to pray, who knows what a difference that could make in our churches. Number two, he committed himself to communication. It says there in the verse, to teach them the statutes and the laws, and to make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work they are to do. There's nothing as frustrating as a great idea that's poorly communicated. There's nothing so frustrating as a great idea that's poorly communicated. And so often, many pastors that I've taught with, I've shared with, and many churches that I've worked with, the biggest issue in the church is the poor communication. No one knows what's going on. No one knows what's happening. It's important that leaders learn to communicate well. So in your house group, in your stewarding team, in your Sunday school, in your work, learn how to communicate well. So far, so good. Number three, Moses laid out the vision. It's important as leaders, we express the direction and the vision in which we are seeking to take the section, the work that we're involved in. Two things I want to share with you quickly, if I may. Number one, vision empowers people to participate. Vision empowers people to participate. In other words, when people know where the church is going, know where the Sunday school is going, know where the youth is going, the people say, I can see where we're going. I can see the direction in which we're called to go. And I want to participate in that. Understand that? If you can't see where you're supposed to be going, you'll never participate because you don't know where you're going. But number two, strategy engages people in the process. So a vision will tell you where you're going, but a strategy will tell you how we're going to get there. And we need to be in our lives, both visionary but also strategic, so we know where we're going, but also know how to get there. Any questions so far? Any thoughts or comments so far? Before I continue? No? Great. Okay. So number four. Uh, Moses developed a plan. So four is plan. So teach them and tell them the work they are to do. Someone once said to me, if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. Sorry? Fantastic. And did you fail? Come on! Parental advice can't beat it. Um, I have the privilege of going around to meet several ministers most of the time and uh, chat to them. And I'm surprised how many Ministers and only pastors actually work hand to mouth. <laughs> In other words, they're preparing Sunday sermon on Saturday night. 
or the thinking about next week's outreach on the Friday night before the week starts. There's no forward planning, there's no long-term strategy, there's no long-term view to think how we're going to get somewhere. And it's just, it's in, just amazing how often uh, people just work from hand to mouth. And uh, I don't know how, whether you're involved in planning or organising different things, but I want to encourage you just to begin to think, not necessarily a year in advance, but maybe just six months or three months in advance, so you start to put things in place so you're more prepared and better equipped for the things that lie ahead. Number five, Moses selected and trained the leaders. So number five is selected. Selected the leaders. So you train them. There is a little tendency in the church today as well to overtrain. In other words, you go to a thousand one conferences about how to do this and how to do that, but you, but you don't actually, actually get out to do stuff. See, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus spent very little time in the classroom with his disciples trying to teach them how to heal the sick or how to raise the dead or how to preach. Jesus was very much a hands-on kind of leader. He wanted just the people just to go out and just to do the stuff. And we can spend so much time in the classroom learning about stuff that we never actually get out onto the streets or the battlefield and just actually do stuff. Any comments? Just feel free to comment at any point. I don't mind that at all. The thing is, what I found in my life is that I've selected people to lead different groups, different sections of the church. And it's always a bit of a risk when you do that. Because by nature, the people you've given these roles to aren't necessarily qualified, gifted, talented experts in the field. They're just people who are starting to learn how to step into ministry, how to grow into ministry. And sometimes I've delegated roles in churches to young guys and young girls, and they've just soared, they've just flown like eagles. It's been brilliant. But other times... I've given jobs to guys and girls and they've just crashed and burned. Now, I take responsibility because I should have known they weren't ready. But sometimes you just have to take a risk with people. And I would much rather err on the side of risk than err on the side of control. Because as you give people jobs to do, they start to flourish and grow in that culture and that role. See, Rick Warren, who's heard of Rick Warren? He said this in his church context, we never have failures in our church, we only have experiments that did not work. See, when I was at the hub, uh, my heart was, let's try it, if it works, great, it doesn't work, that's fine, at least we just tried it. But if you say, the Lord has told me we're going to do this, then you're kind of bound by that a little bit, aren't you? You can't sort of say, well, that wasn't a good idea, let's give it up. <laughs> so we try things. We feel that we want to give this a go. And some of the things that we try work, other things don't work. But it's important to create a culture where failure is not fatal nor final. In other words, it's okay to give it a go, make a mistake, and fall, fall flat on your face because... We're in this together. And we'd much rather you have a go and fail 
They'll be so scared of fame that you don't have a go. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned have been through the mistakes that I've made. <laughs> and I've made a lot of them. And sometimes we learn only by making mistakes. I'm afraid so. Okay. So next, num- number six is uh, Moses released them to serve based on their gifts. He released them to serve based on their gifts. Now, as a, as a pastor, if someone comes to me and says, I feel God's calling me to be a leader, or a minister, or a preacher of the gospel, I, will, I want to test their heart by seeing if they're willing to serve. So I'll ask them to, you know, put the chairs out, or to do the dishes, or to form part of a welcome team, or whatever, just to see if their hearts are truly in it. Or if they're just looking out after a position for themselves, trying to build themselves up, trying to make themselves look better than they are. But once their hearts have been tested, you need to release people into their gifts. In other words, if they are a gifted evangelist, you don't want to put them on the teaching rotor in the church. If they're a pastor, you don't want to put them out on the street doing evangelism. You need to find roles that fit the people's giftings. You need to have round pegs in round holes. Not square pegs in round holes, because that will mean there's no flow of the anointing. So I want you to think sometimes in the next couple of weeks, what is your gifting? What is God calling you to move into? What is your heart? What is your ministry? What is God put on your heart? And believe that God will open that door for you to function in that area. Number seven. Uh, Moses only did what others could not do. What are you called to do? What do you have to do? And what can you let go of and let others do? Um, don't know if you've seen this. Uh, I was going to get a photocopy of this, but I've got the keys. Okay. Um, this is Covis uh, Four Quadrants. Anyone heard, of, anyone heard of Covis Four Quadrants? Have you got a key upstairs? Is it? Fantastic. Yeah, could you just go and run off? Three cheers for Kirsty. Okay, fantastic. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's move on to um, from minister to leader. Any questions about what I've said so far? Are we all clear about the transition that Moses had to make? He had to do less to do more. Had to focus on the things that he was meant to do rather than the things that just came his way. And this next section takes us really into that whole idea of transition from being people-focused to being purpose-focused. Okay. Um, As leaders, our primary responsibility isn't to the people of God, 
but it's to the purposes of God. Okay? Okay. Our primary responsibility as leaders isn't to the people of God, but it's to the purposes of God. In other words, our role as leaders, whatever context we're leading in, is to take the people of God to where they should be. Take the church to where God wants the church to be. It's purpose, it's direction, it's leadership. So many ministers consider their primary role is the people of God, not the purpose of God. I'll explain this to you a little bit. Um, Everyone is called to serve. We're called to serve one another, we're called to love one another. But as a pastor, your desire is to take a person somewhere. It's the purpose of that person's life, it's the direction of that person's life that is key to becoming a leader. Okay, so some ministers are people-focused and some people are purpose-focused. And obviously, to be purpose-focused, you have to be people-focused, but you are both. (laughs) Okay, you have to be both. In other words, you have to have a pastoral element as well as a purpose element to your ministry. Otherwise, um, you just become a fire fighter as opposed to a fire starter. Okay, on this little box here, this just explains it a little bit more. The difference between a minister who is people-focused and a minister who is both people and purpose-focused. Okay? Right, that's fine. That's, it's okay, John. I can just shout. Okay. A, a minister who's just purely people-focused serves people, and a leader who's purpose-focused also serves people. But here's the difference, number two. A, a people-focused pastor will meet directly the needs of the people. In other words, that would be the focus, to make sure that people are cared for and loved and nurtured and supported. And that is perfectly fine. But a leader will empower others to meet the needs of those people. In other words, he's not just going to get involved in the nitty-gritty himself, he's going to empower others to meet those needs. See the difference. Number three, he draws fulfilment from doing the, the work. If he's a minister, people focused. But a leader draws fulfilment from equipping others to do the work. I want to ask you a question. Do you feel feel fulfilled because you do the work or because you release others to do the work? I am... There's been two occasions in my life where I really felt if the Lord calls me home now, I'll be happy. Uh, I met with a young man called Lee Smith and I spent probably about a year mentoring and discipling him and after spending about a year with him he just blossomed he just, he just, he just grew and I felt that I fulfilled my purpose in that man's life I just, I'd, I'd done my task I'd invested my life into him and that was fine and I was really content, so content. 
No, because I felt that I'd really achieved something in my life. He's a happily married man. He's doing a PhD in epistemology, which is um, the study of faith and its effects on the community. So when I met him, I was a stonemason in Lincoln Cathedral. But just to input into his life was just phenomenal. And when people grab something that you've imparted into their lives, it's just fulfilling, it's just absolutely awesome. And the other guy is a guy called Luke, um, who lived with me for nine months, and we shared a lot of time together, and we, we did some stuff together. And now he's just really blossomed in his faith, and he's really growing, and he's involved in ministry in Hull with Gerald Cooper, which is just brilliant. Um, so just to be able to invest your life into others brings fulfilment to me I enjoy doing the work as well but to have that extra dynamic is really important ok we'll just go through this list and we'll go back to Kobe's quadrants ok a, a people focused minister plays defensive to survive in other words he just he fights fires it makes people make sure everyone's all right, and it just maintains the status quo. A leader who's purpose-focused plays offensive to make progress. In other words, he pushes people forward, he or she develops people and grows people to move forward. Number five, a people-focused minister reacts to the needs that arise from moment to moment, but a, a purpose-focused leader creates opportunities to mentor others and to cause others to grow. Uh, a people-focused minister focuses on immediate needs, whereas a leader who's focused on purpose focuses on long-term vision. Seven, a shepherd, a, a pastor shepherds others, whereas a leader equips others. Now, we can make that distinction but every leader whose purpose focus also has, also has to have a strong people focus. But if you have a people focus without having a purpose focus, then you're missing the, a, strategic ele, a strategic element to leadership. Do you understand that concept? You're not about just caring for people, you're talking about developing and growing people in your sphere of influence. Let's just backtrack a second. Have you all got Covid's uh, quadrants? Yes. Okay. Have you got my copy back? Have <laughs> you got my copy? Thank you. Okay. Now this is provides whether you're in work, in ministry, whether you're in Sunday school leadership or youth leadership. Okay. There are four quadrants in your life. Uh, four areas in which you want to operate in. And number one, uh, actually we'll start number three because it's back to Number three, uh, this is important and urgent. There's certain things come to my diary, come to my life every day that are both important and urgent. Things like crises, you know, important issues to sort out, meeting appointments, pressurising problems, deadlines, things that come in that cause crises in my life. Things that have to be sorted out straight away. Can you think of anything in your day that is like that? It's important and it's urgent. You just have to sort it out 
there and then. What's the tea? What's the tea? So, yeah, lots of practical things as well as spiritual things. But that area causes stress, it causes anxiety, and can lead to burnout if you spend too much time in that quadrant. The other thing is the area below, number two, they're not important but urgent. You'll be amazed how many people ring you up when you're a pastor, demanding things, expecting things, wanting answers to problems straight away, that aren't really important, but just people need to have a conversation with the pastor. And those sort of things are important, but they do appear to be urgent. But the area number one is areas in our lives that are not important and not urgent. They're called trivial pursuits. <laughs> so much of the stuff we do in our lives comes into that category. It's not important and it's not urgent. <laughs> we just do it because we just do it. We get into habits of doing things, we get distracted, we just procrastinate, we just put stuff off. And most people, most pastors can live in those three areas. Just respond to immediate needs, respond to immediate crises, planning tomorrow's sermon, planning tomorrow's Sunday school rota, planning tomorrow's you know, worship, you know, all urgent, stress-related. Sometimes you can run around after people who don't need running around after. You can answer phone calls, you can make lots of stuff happen because you have to do it. But the area in which we should spend more time and I would probably say at least 60% of your time should be spent in quadrant four. <laughs> and that is important stuff that is not urgent. Important stuff that isn't urgent. In other words, strategic planning, problem prevention, seizing opportunities to grow and develop, sermon and teaching preparation, building relationships, evangelism and professional development. Because if we grow in those areas, then that will minimise the other three areas greatly. Because we're preventing problems beforehand, we're preempting stuff all the time. Yes, Jonathan? I'll tell you tomorrow. I'll tell you tomorrow. It's pointing off until another day. That's the second joke tonight, and you haven't got both. Don't worry, okay. So, just if you've got time, examine your own work schedule and find out where you're spending most of your time. (laughs) And is it really working? Okay. So, back to um, why leaders fail to develop people. Um, there's a man called Bill Hybels who wrote a book called Courageous Leadership. And he said this, um, he talks about his father who always pushed him into high risk, dangerous situations. He just seemed to push him into places where it was high risk, it was high pressure, even at a very early age. And his father said to him, just get on with it. If you're a leader, you'll figure it out as you go. 
Great advice. Sometimes we learn more by being thrown in the deep end than by sat watching and waiting <laughs> for someone to tell us how to do it. I just want to encourage you, if you've got people who, are, who you're responsible for, just encourage them to give it a go. I was 17 years old, I'd just, become, just got saved, and my pastor, a man called Captain Stan Mosley, in the Sandwich Island Grantham, recognised that I had um, a desire and maybe a possible gifting to communicate and to preach. So at 17 years old, I've been saved a few months, he let me loose on the Sunday morning to preach from the platform. I've still got the tape of my first sermon at home. It's rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's rubbish. But at the time, it was great for where I was. And that man spotted the potential in me and was willing to take a risk with me to set me on a journey of growing in ministry, to grow in preaching and to grow in leadership. I've still got a long way to go, I've got so much to learn. But you know, at least someone gave me the opportunity to have it, give it a go. But so many people, and maybe so many pastors, haven't got that same foresight or same vision or same courage to let people have a go. So this is why people fail to develop and release people into ministry. Number one, they realise that equipping people is hard work. Number two, they're insecure and have a poor self-image. Number three, they feel they are only the, they're the only ones qualified to do it. Number four, they don't trust anybody else. Number five, they have bad, they have bad habits of leadership. Um, and number six, they have a low belief in people. Number seven, they don't know how to train others. And number eight, it's easier to lead followers than it is to lead leaders. Sometimes when we delegate stuff to people, it doesn't work, it gets messy. <laughs> and um, you have to pick up the pieces. I, my, my first church, when I was 23 years old, um, this young guy, brilliant musician, great worship leader, 17 years old he was, I let him loose, and he led worship, it was brilliant, he grew in leadership, and um, when, the, when he worshipped, God's presence just came, it was just awesome. But... Um, he got involved with the wrong girl, or maybe she got involved with the long, wrong guy. <laughs> and uh, they just got themselves into a, me- a bit of a mess relationally. And even though he was great at worship leading, his character could not sustain him in that ministry. And I had to step him down from leadership. So sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes you give people a chance to go for it and grow, but sometimes it doesn't work. But I'd much rather give people the chance than not give them a chance at all. See, I, I'm, I'm constantly looking around the church for people who I can give stuff to carry. Constantly looking forward for people. Anyone who is willing to do it would be great. Because the church grows as people invest in ministry and allowed to grow, to grow and to flourish in that ministry. There's a guy called Robert Half, that's a strange name, but he said this, there's something that is much more scarce 
more rare than ability. It's the ability to recognise ability. The problem that most people have is that familiarity blinds people to people's potential. Jesus, in his own town of Nazareth, was just considered to be a carpenter's son. And sometimes, when we know people's history, we know their family, their background, we can't see the potential in them. It's a great gift to be able to see something in someone and recognise that they've got talents and gifts to grow. But next point is how do we select people to whom we can delegate the work? This is the second half of the next page, if you want to turn over. The important question is, if we're so desperate to release people, how do we spot people with potential? What are we looking for in people? In Acts chapter 6, there's six, seven criteria there that people, the disciples found. Okay, in Acts chapter 6, there are, there are two groups of women in the church in Acts chapter 6. There's the Greek-speaking women, called the Hellenistic Jews, and then there's the Jewish-speaking women, called the Hebraic Jews. <laughs> and the, the Greek-speaking women were complaining because they weren't getting as many sandwiches as the Hebrew-speaking women. They fell out over the food provision, and they made a complaint to the leadership. It's amazing, as the church grows, people fall out over small stuff. And when the church has grown, challenges come. But the disciples decided to appoint seven men from among them who were recognised as having certain qualities and certain gifts that would be able to resolve the situation. And they're listed here on the bottom of this page. Number one, they were known for their sphere of influence. Number two, they were fellow believers. Number three, there were people who could serve on their team. Number four, they were trusted among the people. Number five, they were empowered for the task. Number six, they were competent and intelligent. And number seven, they were responsible. We can't give you roles unless they're exhibiting at least some, if not all, of those qualities. The most important thing that is mentioned there is that all the seven men that were chosen were all Hellenistic Jews, all, all Greek-speaking Jews. In other words, disciples picked people who were not only gifted and talented and faithful in character, but also culturally relevant to the people who were in need. So the disciples put, put Greek-speaking men in overseeing the role of providing food for the, the Greek-speaking women. Great wisdom, that. Okay. Just write these things down. Five things that we look for in potential leaders in the church. This is from Bill Hybel's book, Courageous Leadership. Uh, and it's really quite interesting. But number one, he looks for people of influence. Are you an influence for good? in your social group, in your friendship, in your home group, in your youth group, in your Sunday school? Are you a positive influence in your family? Number two, 
character. Character. How's your character? It was um, the guy from Abundant Life at Bradford, uh, the minister there, I can't remember his name, he said this, don't let your gifting take to a place where your character cannot sustain you. Paul Scanlon. Thank you, Trevor. Don't let your gifting take to a place where your character can't sustain you. Number three, people skills. And I also talked about that a few weeks ago. How are your interpersonal skills? <laughs> if you can't get on with people, if you can't relate well to people, you never become a leader because the key element to leadership is to be able to relate and communicate and minister and share with other people. Number five. Number four. <laughs> you have to be able to count. Well done. Well done. Okay, number four. Drive. Drive. Someone has to have drive. If someone hasn't got passion to do something, hasn't got a passion to pursue something and push through to see something happen, they'll never make a good leader because leadership is quite hard work. And number five, mental sharpness. <laughs> In other words, you think clearly about something. You can think, yeah. I can see how that can be resolved. In other words, you're not woolly-headed. <laughs> you're clearly focused. And the church and, and hope, URC, the whole station road, which is full of people like that. And the idea is, and the passion is, to release those people into ministry. Okay, are you okay with a quarter of an hour? Another 15 minutes, is that okay? Because we're almost... A third of the way through. <laughs> okay. How do we develop others while delegating the ministry? Are you, you found that, have you? Okay. Know yourself. Know the person you wish to develop. Clearly define the assignment. Number three. This is interesting because... Sometimes, communication is so poor, no one knows what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and my wife will often criticise me because I'm vague. I'm vague most of the time. So I really have to work hard at being clear. In other words, would you please do this for me by this date and be very precise. Because people need to know where they stand. And if you are leading a group, they need to know clearly what their roles are and what their roles are not. Uh, a few years ago, when I was pastoring in the hub, I helped George put together some um, volunteer contracts here. And the reason why I did that is because I'm stupid, you know, because I can't remember stuff, so I have to write it down. So the volunteers that uh, took place at the hub and the volunteers that are on staff here have a volunteer's contract, or should have, uh, which um, enables them to realise who they are, what their role is, what their role isn't, and what their expectations are. And it's good to have a set of guidelines for your ministry in what you're doing. Okay, number four.
Teach the why behind the assignment. Number five, discuss their growth process as you go. It's important to have assessments. I would much rather someone sit down and say to me, Adrian, you're doing really badly, than just let me carry on <laughs> not knowing which way I'm going. It's important to have assessments. Spend relational time with people. Allow them to watch you minister and give them resources and authority that they need. Uh, number eight, I just want to pick up on this number eight. Sometimes we give people jobs to do, but we don't authorise them, don't empower them to function in that role. They've got the name, they've got the title, they've got the position, but they haven't got the power to function. And I've written this down. Education and inspiration without empowerment and authority leads only to frustration. No, I can't. I should have been listening first time. Okay. Edu- education and inspiration. In other words, if you educate someone, if you inspire them to do something, but then don't empower them and don't give them authority, leads only to frustration. Education and inspiration without empowerment and authority leads only to frustration. Okay. If you're going to train someone to be a minister, to be part of your team, to be part of your worship team, your Sunday school road or a youth team, if you give them a role to play, release them into it, let them go for it, give them authority. If they make a mistake, that's great, just pick up the pieces but make sure they have the authority to get on with the task at hand. There's nothing worse than being given a role, but being denied the power to function in that role. I know all too well. Encourage them to journal the process. Hold them accountable for their ministry. Give them freedom to fail, hallelujah, and debrief them and affirm them regularly. Okay, number... Page, next page, half it down. What would Jesus do? Are we okay? Yeah. It says in Luke 9, verse 1 2, Then he called them, his twelve disciples, together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. I want to ask you a question tonight. How many chapters in each of the books of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is devoted to the period between Jesus' baptism and the coin of his first disciples? How many chapters, how many verses do you think are given over to just to about Jesus' preaching and his teaching and his ministry before he calls the disciples? Okay. How many verses in Matthew's Gospel do you think, how, how many chapters in Matthew's Gospel do you think are given over just to focus on Jesus' ministry before it calls the disciples? Five verses or five chapters? Five chapters. Okay. In Luke, how many verses, how many chapters are given to Jesus' ministry before he calls the disciples? Luke's Gospel. Two chapters. Very good. In John's Gospel, how many people, how much, how much is dedicated just to Jesus' ministry before he calls the disciples? None. None. 
Okay, and in Mark's Gospel. Fantastic. Okay, here's the story. In Matthew's Gospel, only five verses, five verses, are given to the ministry of Jesus before he calls the disciples. In Luke's Gospel, only 30 verses are given over to Jesus' ministry, his preaching, his teaching, before he calls the disciples. In John's Gospel, no verses are given to his ministry prior to him calling the first disciples. And in Mark's Gospel, no verses are put down before he calls his first disciples. In other words, the priority of Jesus wasn't for him to develop his own ministry of preaching and teaching the sick raising the dead. His first priority was to build teams. Before, no. See, nowadays, if you want to build a ministry in the UK, you have to have a, a church campaign, you have to have advertising, you have to have, get on God TV, you have to get a marquee, you have to present your ministry out there before people will start to follow you. But before Jesus really did anything major in the, in, the, in the land of Israel, he gathered around him teams. His focus wasn't on the multitude, his focus was on the small. Jesus invested time in the few. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, he spent a bit of time with the crowds, he spent more time with the twelve, he spent even more time with the three. In fact, you could say that Jesus spent most of his time with just three men. Who were the three men? Fantastic. The inner core of Jesus' new ministry, three men. And we want to win the whole world for Christ. We want to reach the whole world. But Jesus does something completely different. He, he says, right, I'm here. I'm the Son of God. I'm on planet Earth. What am I going to do? I'm going to preach this preach. I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to raise the dead. But his majority of his time was spent just hanging around <laughs> with three guys. And so I think we can learn a valuable lesson that if we want the church to multiply, let's spend time with the few. Let's train up the few. Let's grow the few. Let's release the few. Because those 12 men, it says in Acts of the Apostles, turned the world upside down. 12 men. Okay. The process of development. Uh, it says there, this is how Jesus discipled people. I do it while you watch. We do it together. You do it and I'll watch. We evaluate. Then you do it while I watch. Other, other watches. Jesus showed them how to heal the sick, showed them how to preach, showed them how to cast out demons, and then in Acts, Luke chapter 10, sends them out. I would have said, hang on Jesus, I'll need a few more days in the training school first, please. But Jesus sent them out. And the word send out 
is the same word that's used to drive out demons. It's eklego in the Greek. It means to drive out. So Jesus drove out demons and he had to drive out the disciples into the harvest field. Because we're quite reluctant to go sometimes, aren't we? So Jesus drives out disciples into the harvest field. <clears throat> See, Jesus measured his success by the success of 12 young guys. 12 young men. All disciples, apart from Simon Peter, were under the age of 20. All of them were teenagers, apart from Peter. <laughs> and those 12 young men, he put his trust in to transform the world. See, it's not about the preaching that's important, it's about relationships and about the building of disciples that's really important. In the 17th century, there were two great preachers in America. One, you probably heard both their names, one was George Whitfield, the other one was John Wesley. And they both travelled England and America preaching the gospel. And by all accounts, George Whitfield was the most dynamic preacher at the two. In other words, George Whitfield, when he preached, people were moved emotionally, they were overwhelmed by his passion, his oratory and his skills in communicating. But by all accounts, John Wesley was quite a boring preacher. Um, he used to read all of his sermons in a monotone voice and wasn't very impressive to listen to. Hard to believe, isn't it? But 250 years later, 300 years later, however long it is since the 1750s, um, you haven't heard of much of the legacy of George Whitfield, but you've heard the legacy of John Wesley, haven't you? Because John Wesley understood that it wasn't about preaching that was really important, it was about discipleship, about growing leaders. And the Wesleyan movement, John Wesley formed the three strategies of the Wesleyan discipleship program. Just to bore you for a second. Number one, it was the societies, which were like churches. Then there was the, the, I what was it? the classes, which were between 12 and 20 people. And then the bands, which were four people of the same sex. So he had, he had three strategic elements of discipleship. The societies developed people's knowledge, the classes developed people's character, and the bands, the groups of four, developed people's direction and their heart and their ministry and their gifting. And the heart of any leader is to transform an audience into an army. Transform a crowd into the core. And our heart as leaders in this community at this time is to grow people and to carry people forward into their ministries. Okay, next page. And I'll, I'll just finish quickly with this because the time has gone. Uh, I was on holiday a few weeks ago in Gran Canaria. It was a fantastic holiday. Um, but part of the entertainment one evening was to learn how to spin plates. Wow. I spin plates. You have a stick, 
on a flight and you spin it. Yeah. I was rubbish at it. But sometimes in church life, when you're working with people or with ministries, you feel like you're spinning plates. In other words, someone's wobbling a little bit, so you go and you spin them a little bit more, keep them going. And over this side, ministry's wobbling a little bit, so you run over here and you spin a bit more, get it going, and somebody over here, and somebody else here, and before you know it, you're running around like a headless chicken, spinning plates, trying to keep everybody upright, trying to keep everyone from wobbling and falling over. But one man or one woman cannot spin all the plates all the time. We need to train people up on how to spin their own plates. Or more importantly, how to help spin people's, other people's plates. People need help. But sometimes they encourage them to help themselves, sometimes they learn how to help them. Do you know how to spin your own plate? Can you spin your own plate? Um, in my a church in Lincoln that I pastored, we developed a pastoral care team. And every Monday I met with a pastoral care team leader and we discussed all the people in the church who needed spinning. <laughs> and sometimes people went off the spinning list because they were spinning themselves. <laughs> but some people will just always need spinning. Always need spinning. Just, that's just who they are. But some people can get themselves spun. And keep on spinning. And the idea is that we share the responsibility around. In the pastoral care team I had in Lincoln, we had 12 pastoral care team members. And it was their responsibility and their role to make sure that everyone was okay. But we're not there just to help them spin, we're there to help them to help themselves to grow. So, just my last point here, those quick nine points here, you can fill it out if you want to. There are several distinctions between a leader of leader and a leader of followers. Um, desire, number one. Number two, focus. So, number three, priorities. Number four, abilities. Number five, attitude. Attitude. Number six, six, time. Number seven, expectations. Number eight, leadership. And number nine, impact. Impact. So, there's small blanks you can fill out, but you fill out the page, but all the answers are there for you. So, I want to leave you with a question. 
And the question is simply this. Who is in your sphere of influence that you can encourage to grow? Who is it in your family, in your team, in your home group, in your workplace that you can encourage to not only grow, but also begin to take responsibility? You don't have to be a pastor to develop people. You don't have to be a pastor to help grow people. You can start now in your environment where you're at. So it's important that we help people to spin their own plates and to release people into the ministry that God has got for them. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts through your word. Help us to grow in leadership ourselves and help us to grow others around us, Lord. Help us not try to hang on to stuff, but help us to release people into the things that you've got for them. And go with us, Lord, now we pray, and keep us safe till next week. In Jesus' name, Amen.